from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with them. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many doctors and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she fell and she felt in her body that, that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the rabbi any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? 
Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. It was in uh, the book Walden that Henry David Thoreau penned one of his most famous lines. It goes something like this, the mass number of women and men lead lives of quiet desperation. Have you heard that line before? The mass number of women and men lead lives of quiet desperation. This uh, so-called quiet desperation for Thoreau was something that needed to be overcome, was a challenge in life's existence, was something that needed to be transcended. And, And Thoreau had a plan to overcome this quiet desperation in his own life. He had a plan to transcend it. He would choose solitude. He would choose simplicity. He would remove himself from the daily trappings of a materialistic, nature-destroying, and governmentally immoral mid-19th century America. He would go to the woods to live in nature to become self-reliant, to be skeptical of, of progress brought on by industrialization and urbanization, to practice civil disobedience against unjust laws from the government, to seek a spiritual awakening to the true meaning and measure of life. This thought Thoreau was the only way to just to transcend, was the only way to overcome this quiet desperation that was shared among the masses. Now, for some of us this morning, I suspect that, that we can resonate with this kind of rhetoric, perhaps as they say, it, it hits home that, that we ourselves have thought about the ways in which our lives have been lived in quiet desperation. And for, for many, the, 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 the quiet desperation comes as we find ourselves on that hamster wheel of cultural expectation. That the quiet desperation resides in the secret places of of life as we we know it, as we're on that wheel. It turns like this, where we're told to go to the best school so that we can get a good job, so that we can make some money, so that we can buy what we want and, and we can do what we want, so we can live in the right zip code, so that we can have kids who go to the right schools, who can get good jobs, who can make a lot of money so they can live in the the right zip code, so they can buy what they want and so that they can do what they want, so that they can have kids and the wheel just keeps turning and turning and turning. And those who have a sense of this quiet desperation often wonder in their heart of hearts or even wonder out loud in community, is this the essence of the good life? Is this what life is supposed to be? Is this a life that satiates the deepest longings of human existence? The self-help industry and, to be sure, certain corners of consumer-minded Christianity have sought to give us the antidote to this quiet desperation as the wheel keeps on 
spinning. Now, I want to be clear about something. This sense of quiet desperation that Thoreau turns our attention to is real. It provides for us a real challenge, a real existence, because it's part of our real existence, rather. It, it has traction in our life. Therefore, it is not something that we should undermine, and it's not something we should scoff at. But let us be honest, at least at some level, this kind of quiet desperation is a first-world problem. People like Thoreau, people like me, we have privilege to take the time and to ponder the challenges brought on by this quiet desperation. We have the time to take the time toward transcendence, to ask the deeper questions. Is this the good life? We have the option, rather, so many of us have the, the option to, metaphorically speaking, move to the woods, metaphorically speaking, to do life around the serene Wal Walden Pond. Many people have the education and the, and the resources to help frame and and meet the challenges brought on by this quiet desperation. But let us remember, and this is not a slight toward Thoreau, it's just simply a, a matter of reality. It's a, it's a matter of the facts that, that sort of surround and construct the context in which Thoreau lived and in which he wrote. Right, I mean, just think about this. When Walden was, was published, slavery was the rule of the day in half of the nation. Remember, the country was on the precipice of civil war. The Trail of Tears, which marked the forcible and violent displacement of Native people under the Jackson administration to colonize zones west of the Mississippi, had just happened a few years prior to Thoreau's Walden. And during this time, don't forget, with an ever-increasing number of Irish and German Catholics, of which my family's father was a part in the mid-19th century, these Catholics migrating to the United States, the Protestant so-called native establishment, how ironic a term is that, the Protestant native establishment reacted to these Catholic immigrants with mob violence with punitive laws, the destruction of Catholic churches, the destruction of private property, and a general exclusion, legal exclusion, from these Irish and German migrants from going west to be part of Western expansion. Here, here's the point that I'm trying to make. Not everyone has the opportunity or even the luxury to deal with his or her quiet desperation. What is more, not all desperation is quiet. Not all desper desperation is related to the search for transcendence. It's not all related to the search for the good life. There are forms of desperation that are simply a matter of life and death. Perhaps we might call it loud desperation. There's a desperation that comes to human beings that hits decibel levels that are ear-splitting. And I suspect that you know what this kind of desperation actually sounds like, don't you? You, you know what this sounds like. 
They are the sobs of a parent who stands by a graveside that now holds their child's lifeless body as they hear the words spoken from the preacher. From dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. They're, they're heard uh, in the addict's story, the, 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 the one that has lied, the one has manipulated, the one who has cheated and let everyone who has ever loved them, everyone who's ever tried to help them, they've let them down, and, and they're desperate to get clean, but they just don't know how. They're heard in the determination of an El Salvadorian woman named Carmen who fled her native home because of unmitigated violence and rape and death. A woman who seeks asylum even now with her six-year-old daughter who is desperate enough, desperate enough to risk imprisonment, desperate enough to be separated as a family just for a chance to sip safety and freedom from the ocean of ideals that not only makes our nation great, but actually makes it good. They are heard in the soldier who has fought for that same nation, who has returned from theaters of war, who suffers from PTSD, who's not getting the help they need, and wonders why they should go on living. Friends, I know you know what this kind of desperation sounds like. We know it when we hear it. And we heard it again in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, verses 21 to 43. It's no different, these cries. The volume of this story is turned up. This is not a story about quiet desperation. This is raucous, unruly, even law-breaking types of desperation. This is despondency. This is despair in its highest form. This is a father who believes that his beloved daughter, his 12-year-old little girl, is on the brink of death this is a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, which means that she is uh, ritualistically unclean and that she doesn't have a place at the community's table, nor does, he, nor does she rather have a place at God's table. What is so fascinating, I think, in this story is the, the juxtaposition of these two desperate characters and how different they really are. There's Jairus, the, the leader of the, the synagogue. He was a person of financial means. He was a community and religious insider. He was well regarded. He was well thought of. He had a daughter. He had a wife. He had a family. What is more, don't miss this part of the story. He had a people. He had a community that when times got tough, they would come to him. They would surround him and his family in their grief. By all accounts in the first century, Jairus was one who had found favor with God. But then there's this woman who, who suffers from constant hemorrhaging. She's excluded from participating the very synagogue that Jairus helps run. She is a community and religious outsider. And we're not sure if she has the support of her family, but what we do know is that she's broke. Did you pick that line up in the story? She's flat broke because she spent all of her money, all that she had, says Mark, on doctors to no avail. They could not produce a cure. By all accounts, this woman was not favored by God. 
And despite their social differences, both Jairus and the woman find equal footing in this. They are both desperate for healing. They are desperate for Jesus to save them. Desperate for for his touch. Desperate for his care. Mark tells us that Jairus falls at Jesus' feet, providing an image of him where he lays prostrate in front of Jesus, begging and pleading for him to come to his home to heal his daughter. The woman, we're told by Mark, fights through the crowds to touch just the hem of Jesus' garment. Both are desperate for healing. This is the common denominator of this text. Both are desperate for their lives to be made well. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the great writer, uh, in his book, A Grief Observed, that book many of you I know have seen or have at least read, and, and, and it's a book that, 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 that talks about his process of grief when his wife was sick with cancer and eventually died. And in that book, he has a line that reads something like this. You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. You, you never really know how much you really believe in something until life and death is on the line. And in this section of his memoir, he uses the analogy of, ro of a rope. He says it's one thing to go into your closet and to grab a rope and, and to think that it's strong enough and secure enough to tie a box together. He said, but then if you're asked to use that same rope to hang it from a tree and to swing from one side of a chasm to another, that's a totally different thing entirely. In this life and death moment of desperation, both Jairus and the woman are banking on the strength and security of a rope that they have never felt. One that they have no firsthand experience with. To hold on to that rope, to carry them across the chasm of suffering and death. And make no mistake, this comes at a great risk. Lewis's image here is appropriate because life and death is on the line for them to come to Jesus. That's why I said earlier that, that, that it's appropriate to, to say that what we see in this story of loud desperation is that it's raucous, it's that it's unruly, it's even law-breaking kind of desperation. I mean, remember, Jairus is part of the religious establishment, okay? You know what that means, right? He's part of the cohort of the religious leaders who were just told two chapters earlier are hell-bent on destroying Jesus. He's part of that cohort. Anything that would lift up Jesus, anything that would promote his mission, anything that he would do to say, hey, this guy's really got it, would put him at risk, would put his leadership at risk, perhaps even put his life at risk. And it's virtually the same scenario for the woman. It's just from a different social angle. Unlike Jairus, who has, who has the reputation to be able to meet Jesus face to face, one of the subtle nuances of this text, it's brilliant writing, that, that, that Jairus can meet uh, Jesus face to face. The woman has to fight through the crowds and come up from behind. And she's like in stealth mode to be able to touch his garment. Again, Mark is trying to show us the, different, the difference between these two and their social standings. One can come from the front, but the other has to come in secret from behind. 
And this touch, this reaching out by this ostracized and unclean woman comes at a great risk to her life as well. For this was in the least improper, at worst, at worst it was illegal to touch a man in such a condition, even to touch this rabbi known as Jesus. And Mark is sucking us into this story, isn't he? Because what he's asking us to do is to identify with the quiet and loud desperation in Jairus and this woman. He's asking us to feel what they feel, and we know how to do that because we know what quiet and loud desperation looks like. And we have a choice, friends. We have power in our hands. We can choose in our desperation to be violent. We can choose revenge. We can choose bitterness. We can choose hostility. We can choose self-indulgence. We can choose self-righteousness. We can, we can choose self-centeredness. Or we can, like Jairus and this woman, seek out Jesus to choose healing, to choose redemption, to choose salvation and what we need to meet us in this desperation. Reaching out to him will come with all sorts of risks. And I know for many of us, even lifelong church folk, many of us are not quite sure that rope will hold. But I also suspect that those of us who still come to worship, who still submit ourselves under the word of God, are looking for good news. And here is the good news of the gospel. Jesus has the power to make you well. He does, for he is alive in this world by the power of his Holy Spirit. He can make you well in life and in death. That is the treasure that we possess. And that's the good news we've been called to share. What is more, the good news keeps unfolding because this healing and this ministry of compassion, friends, make no mistake, it does not discriminate. Mark's intentional choice, another brilliant part of the writing here. Mark's intentional choice for us to hear Jesus' words to the woman upon her healing. What does he say to her? Daughter. daughter. Did you catch that? He calls her daughter. Your faith or your trust in me has made you well. And what he's doing is he's sinking her, this very different person, from Jairus' daughter. He's singing them together and saying they're both daughters of God and they both deserve the healing that I've come to bring. Now, to be sure, let's not miss this. Jesus says a lot in the Gospels. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And this is, I think, an example of it, isn't it? The woman who is last becomes first, but the rest of that saying doesn't say, and the first shall be uninvited. The first shall not be included. No, Jesus includes the woman first, but also this powerful man and his daughter. He has compassion, you see, for insiders and outsiders. His healing ministry does not discriminate. He has compassion for people who come to him full on in the front, and he has compassion for people, rather, who sneak around the backside. He has compassion for every single one of us. And so I encourage you this day, in your quiet and in your loud desperation to hold on to that rope, to trust in his healing, knowing that wellness and forgiveness and salvation will come to us in these moments of quiet and loud desperation. But I also don't want us to miss this challenge. 
If we're to be a friend to Mark's Jesus, if we're going to, with integrity, claim the name Christian, if we're going to be the body of Christ in the world today, which is a theological way of saying if we're going to be the church, then our ears must be attuned to both quiet and loud desperation. We, we need to be on the lookout for that. We need to pay attention to those cries, to pay attention to the cries of, of Jairus and the cries of the woman, to pay attention to the cries of a parent who stands over their child's grave, to pay attention to the cries of the drug addict, to pay attention to the cries of women like Carmen and her daughter at the border, to pay attention to the cries of the soldier who has returned home far different than they were when they left. I think the church is faithful when it moves toward these cries, when it practices the discipline of hearing them, and when it bears witness to the healing that Jesus wants to bring, not just to us, but to the whole wide world, so that everybody could hear at one point in their life, get up, your faith has made you well. I'll close with, with this little illustration. Yesterday, Katie and I uh, met a couple of church members at the Terra Theater on Cheshire Bridge to see the Mr. Rogers documentary. By a show of hands, how many have seen that film? Okay, that's not enough people. I'm telling you, it was like going to a good worship service. It was like hearing a good sermon. And it's not just because Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was a Presbyterian minister. He was. But it's because the ways in which he carried himself truly embodied the message of Christ. As a side note, our own George Worth, Pastor Emeritus of this church, did an interview for this film right there. The sanctuary is in the movie. He has a couple of spots in the film talking about his friend Fred Rogers. One thing I want to share, and this isn't a spoiler because everybody knows he's a good dude and followed Jesus. In one of the episodes, and I remember this as a kid seeing this, he met a little boy who had a tumor that caused him to be confined to a wheelchair. And Mr. Roger comes out and he meets the little boy and, and he moves toward him in a way that is so gentle and so Christ-like. And they begin at one point to sing a song to each other, a song of value, a song of love, sharing love for one another, sharing a ministry of healing that, that was so powerful. And at the end of the film is the credits roll. And you'll need to stay for the credits because you'll be crying the whole time. You'll need that time to, to, to compose yourself. They show on the screen this award ceremony where they're honoring Fred Rogers for something. And this boy, who's now a man, comes out in his wheelchair. And without thinking twice, Fred Rogers is sort of sitting in the second row in his tuxedo. He climbs over the first row. He climbs about an eight-foot high stage, doesn't use the stairs, just climbs right over it to go and hug this man who he knew as a boy and to tell him how glad he was to see him. And, and I had this image in my head. What if the church was like that? What if the church, its first impulse was when they saw loud or quiet desperation, they got up out of their seats, out of their properness, in their tuxedo, and climbed up on stage and moved toward the one who was crying out? What if that was the kind of church we sought to be? What if that's the type of church Jesus wants us to be? 
Be attentive to loud and quiet calls of desperation and bear witness to Christ's ministry by being a Christian, by being a church that bears witness to his healing. May it be so in us and for our congregation, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen.